So I'm reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 6, starting with verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned before the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Thank you, Megan. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be uh, to be back with you after being away last week. I'm sort of coming and going a bit over uh, these uh, months, especially as Gav's away on long service leave. I'll be over at uh, Gledswood Hills uh, next week. Um, but it makes it all the more special when I can actually be here uh, with you, and uh, it is a, yeah, a delight to gather together as God's people. Um, Bertie, six to eight are going to stay in today, is that right? Yes, I believe believe so. Yes, school holidays last week. Uh, let's pray again as we uh, come to reflect on this part of God's word. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you give us insight and understanding. We ask that you'd shape our hearts and our minds, that we would know you better, that we would love you more and that we would respond to you as you call us to. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a, uh, a disturbing week uh, with regard to religious freedom in uh, this country, with the uh, forced resignation of Andrew Thorburn, the, Thorburn, the, uh, the uh, rather short-lived CEO of the Essendon Football Club in uh, Victoria. I think we've got a, a photo here of, uh, of Mr Thorburn. Um, you, have you heard about this during the week? That uh, He was, he was uh, forced to resign after um, one day in the job. Uh, when the club discovered uh, or decided that the, the conservative Christian values that uh, Thorburn's church held could not be tolerated by the club. Uh, in short, he couldn't be a Christian and the CEO of Essendon Football Club. And so he resigned. Now, of course, the, uh, the usual suspects, uh, such as Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, was quick to label Thorburn's church's conservative Christian views as absolutely appalling, 
hatred, bigotry, comments that are um, more than a little bit ironic. But it's a disturbing illustration of the rising intolerance in our culture. A, uh, a commitment to my own position and an intolerance of someone whose position differs to my own. And it seems that the one whose position is most intolerable is in fact God. I think what I think, and who is God to think differently? God, it seems, is supposed to be answerable to us. Which I guess is really at the heart of the human condition, which the Bible calls sin. A commitment to to me, to myself, to my own position, and to my thoughts, to my opinions, and a resistance to God and a questioning of him. Now, perhaps we see it quite blatantly in the intolerance towards a Christian football CEO. But I wonder if the, the same bent, if that same bent towards self and denial or questioning of God, I wonder if it's, if it's perhaps more present in our hearts and lives than we like to think. What is our attitude towards God? Is he answerable to us or are we answerable to him? Uh, This passage before us this morning, I hope, will cause us to reflect on how we regard God. Do we take him seriously? Uh, We may not dismiss or reject him outright, but is our attitude towards God, is it a bit casual? I hope this part of God's word will help us to reflect on this. Now, at first glance, uh, we might think this passage before us is a little bit strange, obscure, the, you know, the movement of the Ark of God from some backwater of Israel, this place called Baalah, um, to Jerusalem. Maybe we think it's a little bit disturbing with poor Uzzah being struck down after taking hold of the Ark. But this is actually a highly significant moment for David, the new king, and for the nation of Israel. Uh, We read two weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 5, how David had finally become king over Israel. All Israel had gathered and had made him king. And we saw last week, uh, as Oliver preached, you would have seen that how how, uh, through him uh, the Lord conquered Jerusalem and uh, defeated the Philistines and the Lord, as the Lord God was with David. God is establishing David as king. And so in chapter 6, David acts to bring the Ark of God to Jerusalem, to the capital. He's, he's bringing the Ark of God to the centre of the nation of Israel. This is a big deal. In fact, it's so much of a big deal that, uh, as verse 1 says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Now, I think the word again is there. It's, it's, it's harking back to the last time that all Israel were gathered at the beginning of chapter 5, where all Israel made David king. So here we have a, another event of, of similar magnitude and significance. David brought together all the able young men of Israel. You might have a different translation that says that the chosen men. These were the, the warriors the best soldiers, the elite forces. And we might be expecting that there's going to be some sort of great battle as David gathers together these 30,000. We might be expecting that, especially with that number 30,000, because that was the number of the Israelite soldiers that were slaughtered 
on a previous occasion when the Ark of God was moved, when it was captured by the Philistines back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So I wonder if this little detail of the number of 30,000 is meant to remind us of that event. 30,000 chosen men of Israel gathered by David. This is a significant event, but it's not for battle. This event is to bring up the, the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Why is that so significant? Why does it warrant the, the gathering together of 30,000 chosen men from all Israel? Well, it's because of what the Ark is, or rather what the Ark represents. Now, the Ark was a, uh, it was a wooden box covered in gold. Here's a, a replica on the screen. It was approximately 1.3 metres long, uh, by 80 centimetres wide, by 80 centimetres high. And it was constructed according to God's detailed instructions in the days of Moses. And it was a significant and symbolic reminder to Israel of the presence of God with his people. It was, notice verse 2, called by the name, the name of the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. God's name, the Lord, Yahweh, it, it reveals who he is. I mean, that, that's how a name works. If, uh, if you meet someone new, one of the first things you do is you reveal your name to them so that they might know you. A, a name is, is, uh, is tied to a revelation of who you are. God's name, Yahweh, is part of the revelation of who he is. You might remember the incident in Exodus 34 where, where Moses says to God that he wants to see God's glory... What did the Lord do? Well, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God's name is, firstly, it's about the revelation of who he is, but secondly, his name is about his, his reputation, his character, his, his actions. And the Ark of God, or the, or the Ark of the, the Covenant, as it was also called, was a reminder of God's character, of his reputation, of the covenant that he had made with his people Israel. But thirdly, the Ark represented the rulership of God over Israel. Notice again, verse 2, the, it says, The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The one enthroned is the king. And so the ark of God reminded Israel that Yahweh is the king over them. And so here we have the ark of God representing his presence with his people, his revelation to them, his reputation as the covenant-keeping God, and his rulership of them as their king. With that in mind, do you see the significance of this gold-covered wooden box, which for some 70 years had been, uh, had been largely absent from the life of Israel, from before the time of the reign of Saul. It had been stowed away at the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim, also known as this place, um, Baala. It appears to have been largely forgotten. But David wanted to change that. He wanted to, to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, to the capital, 
of the nation. The, the revelation, the reputation, the rulership of God was to be at the heart of the nation of Israel. This is a significant moment for David and for, the, uh, and for Israel. It, it warrants this great procession of, of 30,000 elite forces. Well, then we're given in verse 3 details of the, the logistics of moving the ark. Look there, verse 3, it says, They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. Quite a lot of detail we're given. Why are we given this detail? I think we're meant to remember the account of the last time that the Ark of the Covenant was moved, which is back in uh, 1 Samuel 6. I take it that the writer of 2 Samuel assumes that us as readers would be familiar with the, 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 the earlier story and the occasion where the Philistines, Israel's enemies, had placed the Ark of God on a new cart in order to send it back to Israel. And on that occasion, it ended up in the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. The, the same phrase is used back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So these little details remind us, they trigger us our memory of that event. Will this be a repeat of it? Will this be a reversal of it? At any rate, if we know the instructions that God had, had given to his people about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved... At this point, we ought to be feeling, well, pretty nervous because this is pretty dodgy. Uh, God had given Israel detailed instructions about the ark. Um, in short, the instructions were, you could summarise it, no looking, no touching and no, uh, and no carts. Uh, it, no looking, firstly, it was to be covered. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 5, it says, uh, when the camp uh, is to move... Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant law. Then they're to cover the curtain with a durable leather, spread a cloth of solid blue over it so, and put the poles in place. It wasn't to be looked at upon by just anyone. Uh, they weren't to touch the Ark of the Covenant. They were, they were to carry it using long poles that were inserted through rings in the, in the sides of the Ark. Uh, Numbers 4 verse 15 says, After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites, they were a part of the, the, the Levites, only then were they to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The warning is clear, no touching. And thirdly, no carts. There were some carts that were used by the Levites as, uh, as Israel moved around from place to place, but the carts were not for the ark. Numbers chapter 7 verse 6 says this, So Moses took the carts and oxen and gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites, the part of the Levites, as their work required. And he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merorites as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. So with this, with this background in mind, 
When we read that uh, here in 2 Samuel 6, they set the ark of God on a new cart, and when it's repeated in verse 4, the new cart with the ark of God on it, we ought to be feeling pretty nervous. I mean, this was at best revealing a rather casual attitude to God and his word. But the people were seemingly oblivious to the danger. They were celebrating. Verse 5, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, systems and cymbals. What a party. What a cacophony. David, 30,000 young men, all Israel, celebrating with all their might. The party was going down at Abinadab's house that day. But that all changed when they reached the threshing floor of Nacon. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What are we to make of this? This is a disturbing scene. I mean, there lies Uzzah dead beside the ark of God. And we might wonder, well, gee, what should he have done? Should Uzzah have just kind of let the, the ark tumble off the cart? Why did God act in this way? Maybe what's most disturbing for us is that the writer gives almost no explanation for why God did this, other than to say that it was because of Uzzah's irreverent act, or literally, as the ESV says, because of his error. Which error? Touching? Being on the car? We're not given a full explanation here. And we may struggle with the, the lack of explanation, but we need to remember that in the end, God is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. He is the Lord God Almighty, whose revelation and reputation and rulership is over and beyond us. He's not obliged to win our approval. I think how we respond to this incident is actually a good indication of, of whether or not we believe that. I mean, do we have a, a casual attitude to God that domesticates him and expects him to fit in with what we think, with, with how we reckon things should go? I think this is a good reminder that we can't domesticate God. He is powerful. He is holy. As we reflect on, on our response to this incident, to the, to the minimal explanation given, we are given the response of one person, of David. Verse 8 says, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means breaking out against Uzzah. Uh, now notice there, David is angry not against the Lord, as the, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. No, he's, David's angry because of the Lord's wrath, or literally because of the Lord's breaking out, which had broken out against Uzzah. It's interesting, in the previous chapter, the Lord had broken out against the Philistines, and, and David was happy about that. He, in uh, chapter 5, verse 20, it says, So David 
uh, went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim, which means the Lord who breaks out. Uh, David, in that case, was glad that the Lord had broken out against his enemies. But now this breaking out against Uzzah, he, he doesn't like it. He's angry. And he's afraid, verse 9. David was afraid of, of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And so David abandoned the mission, or at least for now. We'll see next week, uh, take two, the second attempt. But here David concludes that, that he and the ark of God can't be together after all. He, he's seen this, this outbreak of the holy wrath of God and his response is somewhat understandably to, to distance himself from it. And so instead of taking the ark of the Lord to be with him, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, someone from the Philistine city of Gath. But then we see there in the house of Obed-Edom that God is not only a holy God, he is a holy God. He is a holy God to be feared, but he is also a good God to be rejoiced in. As we read verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The presence of the Lord represented by the ark brought blessing. He's holy, but he's also good. Uh, in the children's fantasy book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis portrays Jesus as Aslan, the lion. And uh, early in the book, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are, uh, are describing Aslan to the children. And Mrs. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And so the children ask whether Aslan is safe. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's what we see here in 2 Samuel 6. God is not safe, but he's good. He brings blessing to his people. But he's not to be dismissed or treated lightly. Uh, psalm 2, that great psalm, speaks of the Lord's rule over this world and, and it warns kings and rulers and, and anyone who would set themselves up against the Lord and against his king. It says, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Celebrate with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. The Lord is not safe, domesticated. It's right to, to tremble. But he is good. He brings blessing. And so... Rejoice. Friends, if that was true for ancient Israel, how much more is that true for us, this side of the coming of the Lord Jesus? The one who is the fulfillment of the ark of God, 
the one who perfectly reveals God to us, who shows us God's glory, the fullness of his grace and truth. The one who is enthroned as Lord and King over all creation. And Jesus is not safe. Uh, the Apostle John had a terrifyingly glorious vision of Jesus, which he records in, uh, in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, his response to seeing this vision of Jesus, he says, one, uh, Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus is not safe, but he is immensely and profoundly and perfectly good. As John continues, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, the living one, is so profoundly good that he died. He gave up his life for us to take upon himself the wrath of God that we have invoked by all our thoughtless, careless acts of indifference, of arrogance, of defiance against God. We are no better than Uzzah or David. And yet we are even more blessed than Obed-Edom. Because we have the presence of the fulfilment of the ark with us through Jesus. We have been blessed with forgiveness, with life, now and forever. We have more reason to celebrate than David and all Israel who rejoiced with, with their castanets and harps and lyres and cymbals. We have the Lord Jesus with us, present by his spirit. We have forgiveness. We have life. We have eternal blessing. So brothers and sisters, rest in that knowledge. Rejoice in that knowledge. Rejoice in him. But rejoice with trembling. What is your attitude toward God? Uh, perhaps for some, your attitude, if you're honest, has been one of defiance or, or apathy. Perhaps for others, it's, it's one of, well, somewhat taking him for granted. If that's the case, be warned. He is God and we are not. He is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. All of us ought to consider our attitude toward God. May we rejoice. May we all rejoice. But may we rejoice with trembling. Let's pray. Our Lord God, our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, you are Lord and God over this world. You are Lord and God over each one of us. You are holy and righteous and just. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we've not regarded you as we ought. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your life and blessing that you've brought us in Jesus. Teach us to rejoice in this blessing and to do so with hearts that also tremble before you as our Lord and as our God. May we honour you as God this day and in the days ahead. And we ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.